This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. This is Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Innovative thoughts from baseball's best coaching minds from around the world. Brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Now your host, former USA Baseball National Team coach, Peter Caliendo. Hey, hello, everybody. In the U.S. and around the world, it's time for Baseball Outside the Box, the show which interviews baseball's greatest coaching minds who love the challenge, the status quo. Today, we delve into big-time college baseball with former Georgia State's winningest baseball coach who started coaching college baseball in 1997 at the helm of the Georgia State Panther. He, Panthers. He accumulated 550 wins along with having over 100 players in professional baseball. Listen, a former German national team manager who competed in the World Baseball Classic along with bringing the German national team to the 17th in the world. He is in the Georgia Club and German Baseball Hall of Fame. And most recently, what an incredible honor. But you'll know just by talking to him, this guy's sharp, he's smart, he's one of the best in the business, and most recently received the prestigious American Baseball Coaches Association Dave Pilots Ethics in Coaching Award. Just incredible. You should see some of the names on there. One, just to give you which you've heard on the show before, and that is Tim Corbin, um, who we interviewed last week. So right away, let's not waste any time. Let's talk baseball with Greg Frady. What's going on, buddy? How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great, Pete. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thank you. Um, also, uh, I, I get it that the weather's pretty good in Georgia right now, but a little bit better in Chicago. Uh, that's... that's uh... That's funny, but it's true today. Uh, we woke up this morning and it was upper 30s, low 40s here in Atlanta. And then uh, my wife and I just went for a walk earlier. It's in the low 50s out there right now. And so uh, I think the weather is better in Chicago. I rarely say the weather in Chicago this time of year is better than weather in the South, but enjoy that. Now, I'll bet you've done probably some recruiting up here um, at different times. I have, you know, um, one of the players that really stand out, Pete, uh, is a guy uh, from the north side of Chicago, Libertyville, a guy named Bill Oakley. When I was coaching at the University of Central Florida, Bill was such a great player for us and played so many roles, was a left-handed hitting third baseman, a four-year contributor to some really big-time teams. In 2001, the team won 51 games, was ranked top 10 in the nation, and Bill was a big-time player in that. One of the best pinch hitters of my coaching life to come off the bench. And I, I think it requires something special for a guy to be a really great pinch hitter. And if you're a coach, you really value guys that can pinch hit. Because I think if you look in every game, there's four or five pivotal moments in each game that decide the game. If you can have the right guy, a high percentage guy, a guy who is made up really well, uh, and knows how to get to the plate and is mentally prepared to do his job, you put yourself in a really much better percentage and probability to be successful. Bill was one of the best ever, a Chicago guy, and uh, it was just a pleasure having him on the team. He was very prepared. And, of course, a shout-out to Terry Ayers, who, of course, is one of my very good friends from up in Chicago, a legendary icon, uh, high school baseball coach up there. And Terry and, and a lot of other guys have turned out so many great players. We in Atlanta recognize that this is one of the most highly recruited cities in the United States on the eastern coast. 
But we also recognize Chicago is one of the most recruited cities up in the North Midwest up there, too. So we know everybody's going in there hard on players as well coming to Atlanta. In Atlanta, we think it's because Perfect Game has been here for so long Mm -hmm. that in the summer, coaches just come down, hold up for three or four weeks, see a lot of great players. But in Chicago, that's a little bit more limited time. Uh, The weather gets better a little bit later. People see those guys, and then they follow them down to Atlanta, and uh, well, that's how it goes. But we realize, I recognize what Chicago means to baseball. Yeah, you know, Chicago's also been many times, if you look at the draft, uh, real high up in the draft when it comes to professional baseball, lots of, lots of talent up here. Um, you know, we want to welcome, uh, I'm going to welcome Philip Werfold from Mr. Baseball. Mr. Baseball being the top website for international baseball. Great, great website. Go to it, MrBaseball.com. Um, we'll try to we'll put it on our show notes for you so you check it out. Hey, Greg, look, normally, you know, we I've got an idea, you know, what we're going to talk about. Um, and I wanted to start asking you about something, but I'm going to back up a little bit because I interesting something you said. I want coaches to understand how this works a little bit. You mentioned the pinch hitter. Um, you know, whether it's college baseball, whether it's high school, um, whatever level, you know, you we're talking about. How do these guys get ready? How do you keep them ready? You know, because they're sitting on the bench most of the time. Some advice for our coaches, you know, how to prepare them for that right situation. Well, as I've always talked about to my players, being a pinch hitter off the bench is no different than hitting in the first inning as an offensive team. If you're on the road, you're hitting for the first time. You're kind of cold. You've warmed up. You're coming off the bench. Uh, So the trick is maybe you're pinch hitting in the fourth inning or the sixth inning or the ninth inning, just depending on when the game calls on you. Sometimes there could be an injury and you're pinch hitting at the last moment in the third inning, or the game could be on the line in the bottom of the ninth with two outs. Regardless, you have to be ready. So I've always uh, told our DHs, go out and play toss between innings just to keep the blood flowing. Keep a little bit of running going. If you have an opportunity to go back and get a few cuts, do that. Get up between innings, and when people are on deck, get your bat and be on deck, ready to swing, and then go back in the dugout. I mean, it's all about really what role do you want to embrace as a player. I've had players that played for me, Pete, that spent time in the big leagues that was basically a pinch hitter, and then their secondary situation would be maybe a third catcher or a backup first baseman or a potentially a left fielder. Most of the time, those guys, uh, managers, particularly at the big league level, they like experience, they like know-how, they like seasoned veterans who understand what it takes to get themselves ready. I think uh, one of my former players from Germany, Donald Lutz, came to the big leagues. And what happens with a lot of young players is coming up through the amateur ranks, they're one of the best players in baseball, period. If you're gonna play division one baseball or you're a professional player, you're really good, and you've been seasoned to be the starting third baseman, hitting third, whatever, for so long, and then bang, you get to the level where everyone else is as good or better than you, but maybe your specialty is on the offensive side, and maybe you're left-handed, so now you've got extra value. And so Donald found himself getting all the at-bats and through the entire minor league system, but got called up to the Cincinnati Reds and was basically used as a pinch hitter. That is an abrupt 180-degree turn from what you're accustomed to, and it's very hard to stay sharp with your bat. And so what happens is most of those big league guys go up for a while, and then they go back down, not because of talent, but because they're trying to get them at-bats. 
so they can see the the speed of, of the bat. And, and I think uh, one of the things that's always good for pinch hitters to do is try to get as much live BP early that day as possible. If you can get someone live off the mound just to throw, you know, to throw you some live pitches from the mound or put a machine on and heat it up a little bit just to keep your hands fresh and live, it's important. And the day's game calls for power. It calls for doubles and home runs. It's really difficult on a guy to come off the bench and swing for the fences. Swing can get long, time's out of place. So I always really think it's important during BP for a guy who's a pinch hitter to really work on middle away because very seldom do you come off the bench and get first pitch fastball down and in to a lefty. That's just yep. not going to happen. Yep. <laughs> uh, and so, so, you know, and most pinch hitters that are young want it to happen in the first pitch. I would always recommend not to get in a pattern, but to change it up a little, but to see a pitch or two to gauge the speed, look at the spin, try to get a feel for what the umpire is doing, try to get a feel for how they're going to pitch you, and then really pay attention to guys that are like you, particularly how they start the hitter and what they do in two strikes. Because that one-two pitch or that two-two pitch really tells you a lot about how they want to get out hitters similar to you. I'll tell you what, I love it. I'm not sure. This might be a first for baseball outside the box, talking about pinch hitters. And I love that topic because, you know, there's a lot of kids, not just in, you know, in the U.S., but also around the world. As you know, you've done international work. You know, guys are going to be sitting on the bench. You know, how do you get these guys ready? You know, since we're on that, it'd be interesting to to let our audience know this, because this comes up once in a while with questions from coaches, you know, especially younger coaches and younger kids. You know, you've got kids on the bench, right? And maybe you've got 20 players, you know, and only nine are on the field. What do you do with those other ones? You know, you just mentioned things, obviously, for a pinch hitter, but what do you do to educate, to keep them involved, to keep them motivated? The other guys on the bench, I'm sure you might have the same uh, reason in college baseball that you got to keep these guys motivated a little bit. Yeah, that's so right. Uh, this is not old school baseball anymore, Pete, where you have the nine and the nine are your players. And then you have the backup shortstop and he plays only if the first string shortstop gets hurt or there's a blowout or he needs a day off for whatever reason. Those days are gone. Uh, today, a college baseball team can have a roster. We're talking about a division one team. You can have a roster of 35 players. 27 of those can be on scholarship. Division one teams get 11 Full scholarships, 0.70% of another scholarship. So it's 11.7 divided among 27 players. Your best players get 50, maybe 55% scholarship. Guys that come in that are a little bit younger maybe get a little bit less. Pitching always gets more, and middle-of-the-order hitters get a little more. Catchers, shortstops, center fielders get a little more. It's not rocket science. you got to be strong up the middle if you're going to be competitive. And at most mid-majors where I was at, we all struggle with having enough quality pitchers. So a lot of times there's a developmental part of that. And that's, this is a conversation that can definitely be extended. But any, uh, for me, when I was uh, at Georgia State, I ran my numbers exactly. I knew I needed 13 pitchers on scholarship. I really wanted seven righties and six lefties. Of course, I would like to have more. And a lot of times the question always comes down. Do you take a quality pitcher that's right-handed versus a, a step-down pitcher that's left-handed? Well, the problem with that is, as a coach, you always say, we got to have the best guy. So you wind up being very right-handed. Then you become very susceptible to left-handed hitting teams because you can't match up with them. The best teams have the ability to recruit and then stay balanced. So I wanted 13 pitchers. I wanted three corner infielders, three middle infielders, four outfielders. 
Then I wanted a backup catcher uh, or a catcher that can hit, that can also play first base, just back to what we're talking about, about pinch hitting. Mm -hmm. I liked experience. Well, using that roster and that makeup, then you start to have to develop players. And you can't wait for freshmen anymore under the way Division One player teams are now. I think freshmen are more ready to play than they've ever been. They're more seasoned to play than they've ever been, but they still have the hardest adjustment. In the past, it was adjusting to the level of play. It's not the adjustment anymore. They can play at that level. Now it's the adjustment of you're not hitting third and we're not having a birthday party for you every day. That's, <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the challenge because yeah. they've been so celebrated and so sold by this uh, group around them that's their team. Uh, with hitting coaches, strength conditioning coaches, nutritional coaches, um, every polished situation you can get, it's really difficult for them to come in and not play immediately. So I try as a coach, I think you you go back and say, what's best for your team? My, my goal was to always keep everybody actively involved. Now, I don't think any player ever plays as much as they want or performs sure. as well as they want or all that. But you do your best job you can to keep them out there and keep them ready. I've always used that tactic, and I always had a little bit deeper bench because I used my guys. Now, with that said, today we see more college baseball free agency has come to college baseball. And we see more guys in the transfer portal than has ever been. And it's basically because a lot of young guys, and, and parents, if you are listening, I hope you can listen, instead of developing as a person, as a student, and as a baseball player, and having the time to let a young person gain their confidence and get their legs to grow into something, uh, there's, a, there's an attitude to rush the process, to get a person ready to be the first round draft pick after their junior year of college, or after one year of junior college, depending on where the draft is av available. And with Corona, of course, that's changed things a little bit with only a limited number of drafts. But uh, slowing that down just a little bit to let a person mature is so important because confidence plays the biggest part of any baseball player being successful. You can take the most talented person in the world, but mentally, if they don't believe, it's not going to happen for them long term because at some point, competition will even out for them. Even the most talented find it very difficult in the big leagues, even mm -hmm. the most talented. Uh, Bryce Harper being a great example, one of the most talented human beings on earth. He has times he's super uh, um, competitive and, and successful, and other times he struggles, but he's like everybody else. Well, the process speeds up, and then kids wind up transferring because they can't be the starter and get all the reps and hit third, and then the cycle begins. I see it happening, Pete, in youth baseball, in travel baseball, and this is how it usually goes. Starting at about seven, eight years old, Parents put their child in what they consider the most competitive travel team organization they can, and they push their child to play up to that level. Mm -hmm. Just about the time their child starts to gain traction and get some confidence, the parents are already looking to move him to a bigger, better, stronger travel organization. So the kid's constantly moving. So the, the, the piece about relationships and taking the time to make that team your team and playing with a heart is really challenged. Uh, because there's been such a transient attitude among players and among kids. And this continues all the way up to college baseball. Then ultimately, it's really all about trying to get positioned to be a professional player. And I think most players that's at the Division One level think that there, there is professional baseball and a real possibility behind college baseball. 
So as a college coach, it's extremely challenging to develop your roster, get the right people in the field, and get the right people at the right place because everybody wants to be the closer in the bottom of the ninth inning, but get it, having a guy out there that knows how to get the last out is a special thing. Greg, awesome stuff. Listen, um, when it comes to, you know, and folks on Facebook, if you've got a question for Coach Frady, just type it in the status box and uh, we'll ask that question. Uh, you know, college baseball, obviously there's a lot of young kids that want to play it. Um, I want to get to the heart of, you know, the uh, scholarships because I think there's a, a lot of misconceptions. You know, like you mentioned the scholarships already. Um, how, what are other avenues that you find players because you may not have enough scholarships? What players are you looking for? Um, and also what, you know, what can players do to be known a little bit better as far as, you know, being exposed to more college coaches? Well, what I'm going to tell you is a little bit, I would say, uh, pushing the envelope a bit and maybe it's somewhat misunderstood, but I can tell you it's at the heart of pretty much what every college coach is thinking. Number one, they think, is this a good kid? Because you can be the greatest baseball player ever, but if you're going to be arrested and embarrass the program, you're going to compromise that coach's stability to continue to coach there. And ADs are very interested in winning, winning number one. But then secondly, they're also interested in, are those kids going to represent the university and stay out of trouble? So the first thing, uh, after the coach determines the kid can play baseball, here comes the second level and the most important level, because there's a lot of good baseball players out there. Is the kid a good kid? Is the kid a good academic kid? And what happens is, for most of the colleges around the nation, if a kid's a really strong academic kid, there may be some academic scholarship within the university or even a potential for an out-of-state waiver to kick in. And a lot of times, kids are better benefited staying in-state because there's more academic funding at the, for scholarship and for families to stay in-state, so to look at that. And then thirdly, Pete, which might be a surprise, every coach wants to know what are the parents like? Are mm -hmm. the parents going to be a problem? Are the parents going to be a problem? Because today it's so expediated because I find the competition among parents to be very strong, sometimes even more competitive than the kid himself, because parents can see what it's going to take and they want their child to go get it. And I, I respect families like that, that put their time, effort, energy and money into developing a young man. But at the end of the day, that kid's the one got to get out of the car or off the airplane and live with the decision in a new city, in a new place, in a new place to sleep, a new place to eat with new coaches and new teammates. And when you change a dynamic with any person into a new environment, their personality changes. And what you may have seen as this aggressive, dominant player role model that was at the high school level or the junior college level, that personality may change totally as they get around other personalities that are even more dominant than that. And mm -hmm. so uh, I always thought the two things that a parent should really do for their child after they arrive at the process of deciding where the kid's going to school is to tell them that they're proud of them and tell them that they love them and then let them be coached by their coaches and let them work for someone else and learn the ups and downs. It's, a, it's skills that will transition into life and help that person be more successful and learn to work with others and learn to do what's asked of them, not just what they want to do. Oh, fan, fantastic. Let me tell you, uh, Coach Freddie goes to a baseball game and nowadays you've got a lot of uh, 
showcases. So you have multiple players, a lot of coaches there. But when Coach Frady's going to a baseball game, looking for a particular player or identifying certain players, what's he looking for during that event or during those games? Well, you know, you you definitely are looking for the tools. You know, all the tools, sure. Pete. Of course, the you know the ability to hit, the ability to hit for power, to run, to throw, to play defense. You know, the, the, those tools, of course. And can he play defense? But then when you, a coach really a, arrives there, he's really at that point not looking. If he's seen the kid play a couple of times, you're not really looking to see if he can throw the baseball or how fast he can run. You're really looking to see now what is this player like during the game. Is he a good teammate? Is he engaged? Does he play with energy? I'm looking to see when the umpire makes a bad call, and trust me, it's going to happen. How does he react? Does he keep his emotions in check? I mean, this is a big one I'm going to tell you. This is a really, a really big one. The kids that are most communicative on the field are the best leaders. Kids that say nothing, basically the game, they're taking from the game a lot of times, and you kind of have to prop them up. Now, everybody's not a big talker, but even quiet kids can say, one out, heads up. This guy's hit the ball opposite field twice and looks like we're going at him outside. Be ready. A right fielder can tell a center fielder that. A second baseman can turn around and tell a, a right fielder that. So in our practices, I always uh, constantly talk to our players about in game situations, when we would do a, a split squad game or an L screen game or anything that we're playing, I wanted to see how my own team was communicating and develop that aspect. Then I would pay attention to that a lot, Pete, when I was at the game and and how that went. And if you go back and think about all the years you've been in baseball and all the people that are listening out there right now, some of the best, most quality players have been very communicative on the field and they have ways to communicate. Cal Rifkin, one of the great players of my lifetime, and of course the Iron Man, the Iron Horse, uh, was legendary for knowing how to communicate with his teammates and even helped a former friend of mine who was a journeyman pitcher who was with the Orioles and couldn't get anybody out, was about to go down, and Cal Rifkin went over to his locker, sat down and said to him, hey man, it looks like you're struggling a little bit. If you need anything or any help, I'm willing to help you. And he said, well, of course I'm willing to take help. I need anything. And he said, there's certain things going on with your rhythm, with your pace, with your pitch selection, your makeup about what you're doing. If you'd like for me to help you, I can, because I'm going to know where he's going to hit the ball. We can kind of go, we can get him to hit into where our shift is going to be. And this was pre-shift time. Wow. So there's a lot of ways you can communicate. I use Cal Ripken as one of the great communicators of all time. And I wouldn't say he's loud or outspoken a quieter type of personality, but a brilliant body of work when it comes to baseball intellect. And I'm constantly talking about the baseball IQ. And, and that is the intelligence quotient, of course, but tag that with the emotional quotient. And so it's not just intelligence, it's about emotional. And those two things, when you're able to stay under control, and you're able to think ahead, you're able to communicate some really positive, solid information around you, it helps your teammates have confidence in you, and it gives teammates confidence in themselves that you're talking about that. Because if you're ready early, you can look like a genius. Absolutely. Have you gone to games um, looking, you know, knowing that you're looking at that particular player, that's the one you want, and then found another player? Oh, of course. I think all coaches find the, the other player. Uh, you know what happens most of the time? you find the gamer. You yeah. don't find the five-tool stud. 
everybody already knows about the dude, right? Yep. But yep. you find the guy that you want on your team. You find the guy that's going to come to practice every day. So, Pete, in, in practice, this is a Bear Bryant. You know, coaches learn from coaches, and coaches transcend through generations, and they draw back on what other successful coaches did. Bear Bryant always uh, had this thought in mind, and uh, YouTube it, if you like, out there. Mm-hmm. But he, this was one of the speech he gave to one of his Alabama teams is, gentlemen, I'm going to ask a little extra from you. If you are a 70% player of the best player that's going to be on the field, and a lot of you are, I'm going to need you to play at 100% so you can play at all 70%. Because on the other side of that field, there's going to be a 100% talent guy who's only playing at 70%. And you're going to be as good as he is if you play at 100% all the time. Yeah. And I've always believed that. So a lot of the guys that you find, to answer your question, are maybe the 70% guy. But you can bet your ass that guy's going to show up every day and play at 100%. And coaches like consistency and continuity and stability. And if you can count on a guy and you can trust a guy, that's the guy that's going to be in the spot when you need it. You know, you mentioned earlier parents. Uh, take us into a recruiting uh, time when you go to the house, uh, a conversation, what you're looking for, things that maybe, you know, tell you something that, oh, maybe I'm, I don't want to go in this direction. Or maybe I do. Take us through that. Well, first off, home visits are not as uh, relevant as they used to be. Mm-hmm. Most of the visits now happen on campus. And then, of course, you'll take them out to dinner or have a lunch or spend a day or two with the player. But... Things are happening so much faster. You know, uh, by the time you can have an official visit, a lot of this is already hashed out. So there's no really going to the home visit. The home visit used to be where both parties got to know each other. It was one of the initial meetings. Mm -hmm. Uh, By that time, that's way over uh, today. So. Uh, so home visits are not so pertinent, but uh, you you are going to visit. One of the things I would suggest to every parent that's out there with a kid Please listen to this. You should have a meeting with the head coach of that team prior to ever committing or ever signing a scholarship. I can't tell you how many bad situations have happened because assistant coaches would say, well, it's going to be like this and you're going to be like that. And then when you get on campus, I can assure you the head coach is making the decisions. So it's important to sit down and have that face to face with the head coach and answer some questions. I would say that 99% of all visits I've ever had have been really good visits and I enjoyed meeting the people. Uh, A lot of respect for the parents. I would say most of the time parents are extremely caring, very professional, uh, well-read, done everything they can to put their child in the best possible situation. But then on the other hand, if I could be picky and say something, I learn a lot by how dominant the parents are in the conversation. Because if the parents dominate the conversation and the kid actually says nothing, I find that kid not to be as strong as we're going to need him to be. What the kid really needs to roll in there and have his own questions. If, I, if I'm a coach and I say to the kid, well, do you have any questions? And he says no. I mean, I think that the meeting and the, the future between the two parties is a no. It's not going to happen. If a kid says, yes, coach, I do have this. Tell me your position on a playing freshman. What what is your philosophy? Do you like to hit and run and play small ball or do you swing for the fences? You know, I am a scrapper and I'm going to get that bunt down and I'm going to move that runner and I'm not going to strike out. 
and I'm going to be a 300 plus hitter and steal you a few bags. But if your philosophy is for to hit 100 plus home runs as a team and you like the six foot five guys, I, I need to know that up front so that my skill set can match what you're looking for. Those things are important. And I would say that the kids should absolutely write some questions down and engage. And don't forget to dress professionally. You know, it, it's a it's an interview. Uh, the coach, the coach has invited you to come to an interview, uh, but to show up with flip flops, with your hat on backwards and a torn T-shirt, uh, it d- probably doesn't send the right message. Because let me tell you what, the coach is putting his job on the line to take that kid in house. So when the coach is evaluating that kid and what he's wearing and his mannerisms and attitude and and questions or lack thereof questions, the coach is saying, is this one of the 35? Am I willing to put my job on the line for this kid? Is this kid, am I going to be able to reach him? Am I going to be able to progressively get him to a professional standard? And I think Division One coaches look, are looking for kids with a higher standard, a higher everything, a little bit better academics, a little bit better personality. And I don't mean um, in the way of talking. I mean, handling the business, staying focused, you know, mm-hmm. on the daily daily chores of being a player. A, a big adjustment for any kid is time management. Uh, and I think that's a real adjustment for any kid coming from high school, trying to manage your time. Two of the things that people never talk about is the kid has to relearn how to eat and how to go to sleep. You say, well, those are natural things that anybody could do, but they're really not natural because the kid for the first time is living away from home and there's no one to say, go to bed and go to sleep. There's no one to say, turn out your lights. It's over for the night. Go to sleep. There's no mom home cooked meals. There's no making sure we get him some food afterwards. Well, of Mm -hmm. course the kid's not going to, of course the kid's not going to not eat, but they're going to eat chicken fingers and macaroni and cheese for two straight months and then wonder why they're not feeling good and performance is going down. So this is constantly things that we talked about with our freshmen. I would always assign an upperclassman to our freshmen and then we would have regular freshman meetings to talk about these things and how they're doing because they never really have the accurate gauge of what's going on around them. I've got it. I feel good, but they're not sometimes aware. It takes a little experience to gain that. And for our international players, you know, we're going to get into the international baseball, folks. So hang tight. We got a few other things we want to talk about college baseball, but for international players, you know, the cultures have changed too. So I'm sure that's a major adapt uh, ability to adapt there. Um, you know, I know I outdated myself because you know I said uh, home home visits. Uh, so I've been in uh, international baseball too long because I forgot all about the college baseball. There's always no home visits anymore. But thanks for reminding me about that. I appreciate it. Um, you know, the, the other part of all this is a lot of kids nowadays, I mean, probably all of them are on the computer, they're on the phone, they're on social media, everybody knows everything about them. And I know myself, you know, there's times, you know, I don't, I'm disappointed about something and I'm about to type something on that social media and then I remind myself, that's not a good idea. Talk about what coach that, you know, coaches look at social media and all that. That's so Right. Um, what a, I think when you're a young man, you just want to have fun and fun sometimes keeps you from forgetting you're professional and you're held to a higher standard. Uh, the Atlanta Braves, Dansby Swanson cannot go on social media and act and say probably all that he would like to say and have a good time with his friends because that could be taken out of context 
and could be interpreted differently by different people. And mm -hmm. so the best things for Dansby to do, and I'm not Dansby's um, uh, advisor, but his dad, Cooter, was one of my coaches at, at college when I back in the day. He, we, he and I just missed each other a little bit. But he, I played at Troy State University in, 19, in the mid-'80s and won a national championship. And Cooter, Dansby's dad, was assistant coach there during that, that run in the early-'80s. And so I had Dansby come out and talk to our players. And one of the things he talked about was routine, preparation, and you know, making sure you mind what you do on social media. So I, I think every player likes, and it's the generation, they like being on social media. I, I, when I grew up, self-promoting was looked at as a definite negative and you were kind of harshly criticized for that. Yep. Today, self-promotion is expected. It's at a 180 degree turn from 25 years ago. And it's just what our society is. Well, as coaches, we have to understand that that's going to happen. And I think we should even contribute to that and talk about our players uh, in a good light about what they're doing, how hard they're working, and, and kind of promote them through social media. But what they do in their private time and making good decisions about social media uh, is important to coaches because we as coaches – are trying to protect our brand. We're trying to protect our logo. We're trying to protect our program. We're trying to protect the message that's sent to the public. We're trying to portray, portray ourselves as very professional, representing our alumni, our parents, our fans, our administration, our university, and the community at large. And so coaches see things very differently than players do. Players just say, hey, I just want to have some fun. So that's something that's constantly talked about. And every year there's a social media something that comes up where a player has to come in for a meeting because the administration is very upset about the way that went down. And mm -hmm. uh, coaches are basically turned into officials trying to mediate between players and what they think is fun and right and what coaches and administrators thinks are the right message. Yeah, we've seen it. Um, we've seen uh, coaches get fired. We've seen other people get reprimanded because of things they've said or shown on social media. Um, well, let's take a question from one of our coaches online, Edwin Thompson, Eastern Kentucky University. Now, this question, because we're going to get into the international, this quite, I'm going to break it up in two. Um, let's talk about the toughest part of being a college baseball coach. Well, first off, let me say that Edwin Thompson is an excellent coach, and he runs an excellent program in Eastern Kentucky. Uh, his background is that he uh, came from Duke as an assistant coach and then came to work for me at Georgia State. Uh, had the great pleasure of working with Edwin, um, uh, just doing a tremendous job. And uh, I'm pretty sure that Edwin already knows the answer to this question. But <laughs> I think we as coaches continue to ask the questions over and over and over because we need confidence reinforcement that someone is out there that's, that, that still sees things like we do. And... Um, so, yeah, so the, the, tell me the answer, the question again, Pete, the, the, the heart of that, that what Edwin is looking for. Uh, the toughest thing about being a college coach, I believe, is still and always will be management of people. Because you have a 35-man roster, and you have 35 totally different individuals coming from different backgrounds. And a lot of coaches today have international players. You have co players from different parts of the city. You have different... Uh, ethnic groups, different racial groups, you have different religious groups, you have, you have different everything. And I think a coach should, uh, some, some advice that I would give any coach is be true to who you are and to yourself and be a genuine true person and don't change. 
but at the same time, be mostly neutral in a situation, politics, religion, uh, how you feel about certain sports teams, all those things are not important in bringing groups together, particularly people with different backgrounds. Because if I see something politically totally different than my third baseman, and he and I are having a conflict over that, that's just water wasted, time wasted. It had no relevance in what we're doing. I would say to coaches, remember what you do. You coach the baseball team. On a private note, any player that wants to come in to have a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation, that's the time to open up and have it. I always try to have an open door policy and say, I'm available to speak. Uh, particularly a tough question that I would get as a coach from time to time in recruiting meetings is, what is your position concerning religion? And that's a tough question for any coach to get. And yeah. so I always said, I'm very comfortable in where I stand and what I think and what I do. And I'm always available to have that conversation privately, one-on-one, -on -one, and we can talk about the way we see the world. But when it comes time to walk out of the office, we're one team, one people, one unit, and we'll create an environment for everybody to thrive. And the social worldly issues that sometimes divide people are not, this is not the right place for them in a professional work environment. Coach, there's a lot of players out there coming out of high school that, you know, their goal is always to play, you know, as, you know obviously in the big leagues, everybody has that goal when they're young kids, but to play, you know, at the Division One level. Well, Division One level is fantastic, but there's only so many spots there. Talk about all the great places there are to play and how you should kind of identify that. If you're not sure about the ta talent you have and where it fits into a program, how do you go about doing that? Well, I think you asked the right questions first. You know, am I part of the mix? Uh, tell me your plan. Coach, tell me what your plan is for me over the next three years. If, if a coach can tell you his plan over the next three years, you're in the mix. But what happens if I'm looking at colleges, they're not exactly all looking at me, and I'm trying to figure out where do my talents fit, where should I look at? Do I look at the NCAA Division One, Division Two, Three, junior college? Um, you know, because, you know, it's like a college coach calling me and saying, listen, I know you're in Chicago. You've got, you see a lot of players. Does so-and-so fit in my program? Well, I don't know your program. Uh, you know, I have a decent idea of the, of the level, but I'm not sure of the program yet. So how, how does a young man identify that? Well, first off, uh, today, social media can open up the world. Everybody has recruiting videos at every level. Everybody, uh, you, you have material being written from the, the program. And there's different ways to communicate, uh, direct messaging, texting. Uh, really, people don't really communicate via email anymore. But still, calls uh, on a personal level were important to me, probably less important to this generation because they function more in text communication yes. than in verbal communication. But no matter, I, I would say this to any player, I would say it to my son, research where you're interested in and then let them lead you if they're interested in you. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you're, a, if you're a really sharp guy and you're interested in going to Harvard, but you can't get into Harvard, Harvard's not gonna be a good fit. But if you're a really sharp guy and you can get into Harvard and you'd like to play on the baseball team and you contact the coach and say, coach, you may not be aware of me because I'm from San Jose, California, but I've been admitted to Harvard and I'm very interested in playing with the team here are my credentials. Here's the number to my high school coach. Here's the number to my travel coach. 
Uh, here's the number to my local pastor from my church. Here's the, the number to people that I was doing community service with. If you can market yourself a little bit, that coach is going to be smart enough to take a look. And then you'll have to see, does your skill set fit what the coach likes and how the team plays? Pete, one of the biggest things that I've always said to players is the, the guy that's the most important guy who's going to make the decisions, who's going to determine your outcome, is going to be the guy who writes names on the lineup. And if you can't figure that game out soon enough, your name's not going to appear on that lineup. So if you go to a program, the first thing you need to do is get in line with the guy that writes the names on the program and go to work. Some people say, well, I'm not going to, I don't want to go in there and try to do that. I don't want to present the wrong information. If you go to pro ball, the, the first thing you need to do is listen to what the organization wants you to do. The organization is going to create a plan for you to be successful. And if you say, no, I don't do that, then uh, immediately there's roadblocks where you're not going to be successful. You don't have to go to Division One to have a great college experience. I would always say to any player, go where you're wanted, when people want you. Now, if you're wanted at a school that's not certified academically and it's not SAC certified and you can't get a quality degree, that's not a great place for you. But if the, if the academics fit your direction, the coaches values fit how you've been brought up and then you can find lessons from the coaching staff because they're good men to grow as a man and you'll get a fair chance to compete on the field where nothing's going to be given to you but you'll get a shot and a coach is going to get you in there to give you a chance to see what you can do that's a good spot for you and even if you're not the starter in year one find the place that's going to work best for you Great advice. Love it. Um, I want to welcome Anthony Iaposi, my good friend, uh, hitting coach, major league hitting coach with the Chicago Cubs. Check him out. He did a couple of shows on YouTube for us and also Baseball Outside the Box. Did a great one yesterday on uh, question and answers with different coaches from the U.S. and around the world. Speaking about the U.S. around the world, you've got a lot of young coaches who um, you know, are kind of building up their resumes a little bit and they're wanting to get into college baseball, you know, whether it's U.S. or internationally, some advice for some of these young guys and gals who, you know, how to get in front of coaches, how to get them to see, what, how, you know, what you can do or what you can do for them. Any advice there? Yeah, be genuine. That's what I would say most, Pete. Be genuine. There's about one gazillion good baseball coaches out there. There truly is. Yeah. But a lot of those guys may lack experience in running a program. And you don't just get experience because you say, I'm really good at teaching a guy how to pitch. You have to go in there. You have to put your time in. You have to serve. I think a lot of young coaches want to come into a college program and immediately be the first assistant and be ready to be the head coach in two years. Well, I mean, they say a lot of people have been overnight successes. And I would say, as the old saying goes, it's been a damn long night to be an overnight success. Uh, quickly, in my background, I got a uh, I got a free agent contract with the Houston Astros that went nowhere immediately I was in a graduate assistant position for two years and they paid my tuition I paid my books no food no housing and I worked 14 18 hours a day just like I was making a hundred thousand dollars a year okay mm. so I did that I got my master's then I got a ten thousand dollar a year in year three assistant job with no benefits and then I got a head coaching junior college job in Florida at 26 years old, a miracle from God, 
to be able to get a job at that age. Uh, and I worked my butt off. But the reason I got it was because it was a terrible program. The facilities were bad. Uh, they had no scholarship money. And my wife asked me, have I lost my mind? And I said to her, in this business, you have to take a job that nobody wants and make it good before anybody's going to pay attention. And we did a great job there. Six years there. And when I left there, I was making $27,000 peak. Okay, so that was time. Went to UCF in Orlando, first Division One as assistant uh, associate head coach in jobs. Spent uh, seven years there. Went to Germany, helped revamp a German team. Not making a lot of money, but I knew the experience and the relationships and what that would mean for me over time would be invaluable. And it was. There was no salary I could ever tell you worth what I got from that. And then I, as it, I stayed with Georgia State for. Uh, four years, uh, 16 years, and and um, great experience. And I did make some money by the time I was at the end. But the the long winding road is difficult. And you've you've got to pay your dues, take mm -hmm. your time. But here's how you really move up. There's three ways to get a job. There's having the money to just outright buy your way through. And I would say 99.9% .9 of the people don't have that situation. The second is just be the best guy. Be the best guy that's on that application. And you would think that would get you the job, but that's also a pretty small percentage because coaches are not always on board with the best guy. They see that as kind of intimidating and you're just stepping stone to move on and step on them and move on. And the way most jobs are acquired is by network of people. You need a sponsor to speak on your behalf as a young coach. And how you get a sponsor is for someone to give you a chance, usually to work for free, and you prove that you're worth it to work for free, which helps you speed up to get a paid job, just to move up the ladder. And then if you're committed and loyal to that coach, that coach will speak on your behalf. Earlier, Edwin Thompson wrote into a message for you, a mm -hmm. former assistant coach. He's been outstanding as a professional and very accomplished man on his own. He does not need me or anyone else to speak for him. But the more people that can speak for him grows in value, and you get that. His coaches at Duke uh, always spoke for him, the places that he played. Uh, uh, just amazing. Omar Johnson, one of my former players, who's the head coach at Jackson State down in, in Mississippi. Brock Bennett, who's over at the University of Georgia right now. Steve Rosen, uh, who is with the Minnesota Twins. B.J. Hubbard right now, who's with the St. Louis Cardinals. All those people played, worked with me, and maintained a really close relationship, and I still make calls for them. I still write letters for them, and people still want to hear what I had to say. If you're a young coach, build bonds. Do what your head coach asks you to do. Help him be as successful as you can be, and the world will open up for you. Now, when you don't do that and you shortcut the process, and there's some ADs that will hire you, because you put a knife in somebody's back because they think you're good, you'll be astounded how short your career is going to last. If Coach Frady was going to look for another, say you wanted to get back into college coaching at the highest level, you know, there's going to be a lot of guys, you know, competing for that one college or two colleges. What would you do different nowadays to sell yourself? Well, that's a tough question because uh, I'm going to come back to what I said earlier, Pete. You need to be true to yourself and you have to be genuine in who you are. And I can't change that. You you have known me as a person for a long time, not he just here in the United States, but we've been together in Panama, in Central America, in Europe, 
uh, all over the world in different tournaments. Uh, you as a technical advisor, me coaching the German team, both of us having professional roles. Uh, but then maybe later in the afternoon, sit down, have a cup of coffee together and talk baseball. Uh, absolutely. But but with that said, I think there's more vital urgency to win today than there ever has been concerning coaches keeping their job. And that concerns me. As I, as we go forward, I am a little bit concerned. I still believe, as an old-fashioned coach, that the college experience is to help a young man develop, uh, is to help a young man get a college education, and to help him be a total person while teaching him the game of baseball and helping him move up to the highest level. I really always believe that. And then you maintain that relationship with them after the, their playing career is over. That's a lot harder to do now than it ever has been because if you don't play the freshman and hit him third and play third base, then they think there's a disconnect on a personal level between you and them, and then they're getting a lot of feedback uh, on the outside and the noise from the outside. Uh, I guess I would probably try to say that I would shift more gears and be more likely to cut players and be more likely to plan and coach and run a program based on winning today, not trying to be patient to let things develop and play out over a four-year period with a young guy versus that. And I'm really sorry for this generation of players that it's going to be like that with coaches, but now coaches do get fired quickly if they don't win. I was just looking at Kendall Rogers' report from D1 Baseball, and it said last year that last year was the by far the most coaching turnover in the history of D1 Baseball. Wow. And the, the reason he wrote that article is there should be very little turnover this year because there was no season. If there had been a season, I would have predicted this year's class would have beaten last year's class, and next year would have beaten this year's class because patients are over. There are, there are no patients. You either win or we have to get someone else. Well said. Coach Henley on Facebook, uh, just to let you know that I got your question, but uh, uh, Coach Frady already answered it, so please go back to the show at the beginning and listen to the show. It'll be back on live on Facebook again right after this. Uh, Coach Frady, take us into the international realm of the game, um, you know, going with the German national team, with competing in the World Baseball Classic, taking them to be 17th in the world. Uh, this just didn't happen overnight. Take us inside at the beginning, what you had to do to build that. I, and I realize it's just not you. It's also your coaches and players and so forth. But what you had to do right away to get the team going in the right direction or the organization. Sorry. Well, thank you, Pete, uh, for those kind words. But like in anything, whether you're at Georgia State, you're in Chicago, or you're in Mainz, Germany, or wherever you are in the world, it's not one person doing it. It's a collective group effort. The key is, is in leadership, in my opinion, and I'm constant. I do a lot of public speaking. I'm constantly asked to what what is the meaning of leadership and what is the role of a leader in any program or organization? And I, I think leadership just comes down to this, the ability to listen and learn to collect information. That's what a good leader does first. The second thing a good leader does is he digests that information collectively, listens to his people, and then he makes the decision. A good leader doesn't stay a leader long if you're making bad decisions, so you have to make good decisions. And then thirdly, the most important part of that is after you've collected the information, you've made a good decision about what's best for your organization, you have to get people to follow it. Because if you're the greatest decision maker 
and you know everything, but nobody will follow you, you're not going to be a great leader. So those things require time and they don't just happen. You don't just show up and say, I'm the leader, get on my boat or I hit you with an oar and knock you out. That's just not the way it's going to go because people don't, people don't react long-term and stay with you long-term if they're intimidated and scared. What they want is relationships. They want loyalty. They want to know that you're with them and you're going to be with them. Uh, I would say one of the greatest experiences of my coaching life is coaching international baseball. What you, you may not even know this, Pete, but I spent one year in the German professional league at the Bundesliga coaching the Mines athletics team. And we were picked pretty far toward the bottom and we won the South division league and we're on the way to winning the championship. But a hurricane hit my house in Orlando and I had to go back to Florida. And so we were, uh, I think at the time, 27 and four and got swept the weekend I was gone and knocked out of the playoffs. Well, out of that, I, was, I established a ton of relationships and with those guys every day, that kind of helped transcend me into being the German national team coach. I went there to be the German national team coach, but along the way I helped the Mines team because I saw that there was a lot of players that was on the team was going to be national team players and I worked with those guys but then what happened behind that was they said yeah he comes to practice every day yes he's prepared yes he's professional yes he's good to be around yes he shoots a straight no it doesn't always go our way but I think you're gonna like it he's not playing politics well they're telling their buddies down in Regensburg and Stuttgart and up in Bonn and over in Paderborn and in Berlin and Hamburg and on and on and so we had a, a few training camps and I, at the beginning, I think players kind of test you to see, you know, uh, I don't do this or I don't do that. And uh, at the beginning, uh, basically, I just said, hey, I'm trying to find the right guys and the right fit that can create the best team environment because that's what we're lacking. We had at the, when I got there, a lot of the players would show up for the tournaments. They would even be coming in on day that we we're playing. And there was really no team concept. There was no training. Uh, there was no, a lot of coaches had done it, but it was hard to organize that because the failures of others in the past, and I'm not just talking about coaches, I'm talking about organization, uh, created an atmosphere where players didn't want to be on the national team. They didn't see that as anything special. So what I did with the administration and uh, Jesko Weiss was one of my assistant coaches and a, a, D, a DBV director for years along with Carson Doof, uh, Toby Versig, uh, Michelle Gomez, uh, Art Viedmeyer, Stefan Hoffman, a lot of the names that you know that you've dealt with over the years were in that place. They all were very supportive of me and worked to help get that off the ground. And so we did that. We had some camps and, and we really worked together as a team and I didn't overwork them. A big mistake with American coaches going international is to treat international players like American players. Americans have been playing baseball every day since they could breathe. But a lot of international players only practice two times a week and play one day a week in their games. Mm -hmm. So when you try to go into a seven or a 14 day training camp and you're up early and you're staying late, their arms, their feet, their legs are shot. You can be beaten before the tournament ever even gets off the ground. So what's important is you, the players know the signs. The players know what positions to be in. The players know what the plays are. The players know when what their roles are. The players get the BP that they need. The players get some morning practice, a long rest during the day, and then a, maybe an evening practice and not to put too much on them. 
And then it's important that you secure the captains on the team. I had so many good ones. Simone Goering was always and still is the German team captain. I guess I'll look to him forever and say he's the German hero. He taught me way more than I ever taught him about how to coach the German team. And I learned that by listening to him and watching him and do it. I will tell you, I had a German meeting. This was like in year three, and I really was practicing my German. Not that it was good, but I was really trying. And so my goal was to go into the German meeting and speak German all the way through. So I go into the meeting and I think I did a pretty good job. It wasn't great. And I understand that my German is never going to be a good German. And after it was over, one of my team captains, Merkel Hyde, which wound up later to become president of the DBV uh, up in Bonn, Germany, a, a Hall of Fame player himself there, came up to me and said, Coach, can I talk to you? Yes. What's going on, Merkel? And he said, all the players are so appreciative of you attempting to speak German and your effort to speak German. It's very impressive and we appreciate it. But can I make a suggestion? And I said, absolutely. And he said, um, when a, a speaker speaks in a foreign language that's not native to himself, sometimes the message is lost by the broken language. We yes. all speak great English. You, why don't you just stick to the English? Well, of course, that killed any motivation for me to speak any more German. But I always greeted them in German. I always said goodbye. I'd always kind of compliment them a little bit in German. And I wasn't a great German speaker, Pete, by any means. But I made the attempt. Those little subtleties of things created relationships, bond. They could see I was trying to be one of them. And then I also encouraged them very much to appreciate hearing their national anthem and understanding what that meant and the pride that they were, should be displaying to represent their country. For most Germans, they're never going to be in the big leagues. So mm -hmm. to play in a European championship, a World Baseball Classic, a World Cup is as close to the big league experience as they're going to have. So when we got to the, the, the German national team, there was no club talk. There was only talk about being prideful representing the country. And everybody wanted to, to play on the team uh, after some time. And then I made it important that we stay in good hotels. We eat good food. We travel well. Our equipment was good. So that, and the DVD, all those people working in there, always making it happen. And I always tell the players, everybody's working hard to make that happen. Now, with that said, you have to put your ego on the line and on the shelf and do what's best for the team. Because I'm not here to please you. I'm here to represent Germany. I've been selected to do that. You've been selected to do that. Let's work together to get the best. And I would say most of the time that happened really good. I'll tell you what, some great advice for a lot of coaches out there to build a culture from the start and develop that club. Love it. And, um, you know, Coach Thompson had asked this, you know, he asked what is the toughest thing about international baseball, coaching international baseball. I want to add a second thing to that, a second question, and that is not only what is the toughest thing about coaching international baseball, but what's, some, what's the toughest decision you've had to make with the German national team? Ooh, well, I can tell you that anytime we put a roster together, and it was a 24 or a 24 man, depending on the tournament, I could fire off about 12 to 15 names, Pete, that was going to be on the team. And then we went into the, the most deep, long, intense, painful, struggling conversation on who was going to be the final eight or the final nine. Uh, it was very difficult. But Germany's been very lucky. There's a lot of really, really good players in Germany, but there's not 25 world-class 
major league caliber players in Germany either. And Germany does have them. Donald Lutz was the first big leaguer. I mentioned him earlier when we were talking. Played with the Cincinnati Reds. I was recently having a conversation with Dusty Baker about. He said they called him Big Big Lutz, Big Lutzy. And um, uh, Donald hit his first major league home run on Mother's Day, and they got the ball for him, and he's able to present that to his mother, which I know that was important for him, and not only him, but for his older brother, Sasha, who was a great German national team player. And Sasha would have been a potential big leaguer had the game come to Germany and international baseball, MLB, but Sasha was too old. He was ahead of that, so the chances were so much less. And then as the game came to Germany – one of the things, Pete, that I was in a lot of conversations was, was was with MLB on how we can promote international baseball. And I was adamant about if you want baseball to be great in these international countries, help promote their national team. Because you got to have heroes in the country concerning baseball. And the chances of, of countries having major leaguers, multiples of them, is very small. Now, Germany had Donald Lutz, and he went on and uh, had a, a stay with the Cincinnati Reds for a couple years. But now they have the real star in Max Kepler, who is yeah. a big league dude. He, if you, For those that may not recognize Max's name, and I'm sure most do, Max is the starting right fielder and center fielder for the Minnesota Twins. Signed a, a, a five-year contract last year. Uh, he's been a, an outstanding player. MLB had him, the MLB network show had him in there. Some had him in their top 10, some had him in his 11th, but he's a, a top 10 caliber outfielder. And if you start thinking about right fielders in the MLB, there's some really, really good players Absolutely. in MLB. Max last year hit 36 home runs and, and I think he had 80 some odd RBIs if I'm not mistaken, but, but didn't play basically in the last month of the season because of injury. I think he's a 40-100 man if he stays healthy the whole year. And he's a 5 tool player. Now, that's very easy for people to say, but I saw it firsthand. He has a plus arm, a plus bat, plus power, plus ability to run, and he's a plus defender. He plays the game so effortless. The thing about Donald and Max, they didn't start off with the American way to play. They had a lot of catch-up to do, but they did that. Donald was basically 14 years old playing for Bad Homburg Club in not a great baseball environment with no really brought up way of professional learning. He he found uh, he got his glove, his first glove when he was older, like 12 years old. And mm. so he didn't start playing till late. The fact that he's in the big leagues in that short a period of time is an amazing thing. But it speaks to the volume of how many really good athletes there are in Germany and in Europe. And the difference is, is that soccer grabs most of them sure. very soon. Max Kepler could have probably been a big-time soccer player. He has all the intangibles, the way he moves and his athleticism. His mom and dad were ballet people. They owned the Berlin Ballet Company. And, and a lot of it's been written about that, and a lot of people know about Max. But So I had some really high-level players, and then I had some players that were very uh, role players, and it was important to me to help them say, hey, I want to select you for the team. This is what I want to do, but I need you to help me understand, are you a good fit? Because this is the role I see for you on the team. If you think you can take this role and help lead Germany to a medal, I want you to be on the team. If you don't think that you're being treated fairly or this is the right fit for you or this role is not acceptable to you, let's just part ways right now because I need everybody to be on board. And so we had so few attitude discipline problems on the team. I was just very, very fortunate to have that type of quality professional individual. 
Coach, you've been generous with your time. We got a couple more things. The last two, uh, I'm just going to ask you about the DH and, the, and then a robo umpiring. But the one I wanted to ask was about Germany or about Europe in general. The difference of your practices in college baseball and compared to international baseball. There's a lot of things that maybe are different. How you ran the practices, why you did it that way, how you prepared them to get into the real situation because a lot of them, didn't, like you said, didn't play a lot of games. Talk about that for us. Well, I think in Division One baseball, you get a young guy in pretty quickly. You can somewhat, if he needs a, a big overhaul, you can kind of, you can really get into some in-depth teaching and overhaul his swing or pitching mechanics. You've got time. You really do. You're with them all year long. You've got time to help them. You can help them build up arm strength. You can help them get better pitching, throwing type mechanics. You can help them understand pitch selection. You can help them develop a second or third, maybe a fourth pitch, depending on how advanced they are. You've got time. But when you're in an international situation, you don't have time. So what you do is you build up confidence. Confidence mm. is way more important because remember, even if a guy's playing at 70% of what the other guy's got 100% on the other team, if he's playing at all 70 and his attitude's right and his confidence is right and he thinks his best is going to beat that other guy's best, it doesn't matter what you think in the way of percentage. You want, want him in the right mindset. I always thought the German team would really take on anybody anywhere. And uh, something I'm proud of, Pete, is the German team really did a great job winning against most teams over there, with the exception of the Dutch and the Italians. And mm -hmm. just sometimes you just get overwhelmed with talent that you can't get over the hump. But what we did a good job of there was we made every day its own. So when you're in the European Championship, the Germans are better than uh, some of the other countries where they've got more money, there's a de de the developmental is more advanced and more mature. But when you get to a World Cup or a World Baseball Classic, you're not just better than anybody there. You have to play good to win. And there's such a different level because in Europe, depending on who you're playing that day, you can almost decide what your percentage and probability is going to be to win based on how good the other team's going to be. Well, when it comes down to everybody equal in level, it's based on how you play. And there's such a difference between having to beat the other team versus to just be patient, and let the other team beat themselves. And so that was part of the whole strategy is that the confidence to, to do it. So the Germans are in the World Cups and baseball classics, and we're in Stuttgart in 2009 playing the French team. And I felt like that the German team was a little ahead of the French team. We had played them several times and beaten them, so our confidence was good going against them. But I had a lot of respect for them because they had a, a good team, and their coach Fabian was a good friend of mine, and he always did a really, Fabian Prost, always did a good job having that team ready to go. So we had a bad inning. Like every team and every tournament and every uh, one game or two, you're going to have some bad things happen, and it just didn't go our way. And we were down 10-2 to two in the fourth inning, and it was a shock on home soil to be down to the, the country's rival of France. But I called the team together and I said, guys, look, hold up for a minute. I feel like we've got a really good team and a team very capable of still winning this game. But really, this is what it comes down to. All the time we spent down in Panama and in Canada and in World Cups, in Taiwan, in Taichung, in Taipei, all of those times playing the South Koreans, the Japanese, the USA team, the Venezuelans, the Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans, those teams are real and you played them great and you won some of those games. The thing you have to remember is you have to play and stay confident and let's 
peg away just one run at a time. And we won in the bottom of the ninth in a walk-off home run by Robert Gruber, one of the quiet leaders of the team and a guy that was one of the final nine selected, should be on the team, but had to fit the role, and he did. And uh, still to this day, when Robert Gruber and I see each other, that's one of the thoughts that we had. Now he's a retired player, a great father, a teacher in the university's or the school system there. And uh, it was a great moment. I thought that moment really defined a lot of the history with the German team and why they were able to win, because their confidence stayed high even when things looked bleak. Outstanding. All right, Coach, let's finish it with this. DH, yes or no, and why? Yes, I love the DH in the American League, and no, I don't love it in the National League. I still think there's – I think if you're a really game manager – and you really strategize in the game, it takes a lot of the game management out. I love the strategy, and I love how difficult it is on National League managers. One of the great things about being in the National League is when you're in the late stages, hitting in the 6th, 7th, and 8th, do you take the guy out who's rolling getting them out because you're behind a run, or do you hit for that guy, or do you let him go back out? And I think when you have the DH, that totally changes things. I think it's much easier to pitch for a team in the National League than it is in the American League because you should be getting a, a lesser caliber hitter, a pitcher, versus a major league hitter. And I'm not saying there's not some good major league pitchers that can hit. There are some good ones. But that changes it. And then I do enjoy the DH at the college level uh, because it helps get another player into the game. Mm. I don't really love the DH from a baseball purist standpoint, but I'm okay either way. I see both sides. And finally, this has been an awesome show, but um, sometimes great things have to come to an end. Um, it's going to happen. I think it's inevitable. I don't know when they're testing it, uh, but the RoboCops or electronic strike zone is going to be in baseball sometime soon. What do you think? Well, there's a two sides of this. I'll start off by the umpiring, natural baseball, naturalist flow. I think part of being good at what you do is adjusting to the day and the environment of what you're in. And the umpiring is certainly that. Guys give off, maybe a ball off and squeeze you on the inner half. Maybe they give down in a way but won't give you the high strike zone. You have to figure all that out. That's part of the strategy of baseball. But then on the other hand, on the day when the umpire is having a bad day and you say, you know, hey, you missed that pitch or where was that pitch at? And he takes a human attitude, an element of the game where now he squeezed you intentionally. I don't appreciate that at all as a manager, as a coach. And that's usually when you wind up getting thrown out. And it only leads to future problems with relationships in the future. I think I've learned over time, you know, I can attract a, a little bit more using honey than I can in a, any other direction. So I've tried to be a little sweeter, Pete, over time. <laughs> However, with the way the game is going, with millions on the line, and then college coaches' jobs on the line if they're winning or not winning, why would we not want the best technology to make the game fair for both sides? I, I kind of like where the strike zone is going with the robo umpire. I need to see a little bit more body of work to know that it's smooth, it's flowing, it keeps it going. I like having the umpire back there as a visual. You know, one of the things that I always wanted to do with my pitchers three weeks out before we played was have them on the game mounds throwing a limited number of pitches, but I wanted them to see the hitter, the catcher, and the umpire. The visual effect of changing that dynamic absolutely messes psychologically with pitching. So I'm for robo-umpiring, 
if it transitions and goes well, with umpires behind the plate for the visual, still running the game, safes and outs, check swings, and keeping the game going. And I love the tip about the umpire there when the pitchers are throwing. I think you're making it more realistic. I agree 100%. And guess what? Uh, possibly your buddy Bill Dickman uh, gives you a thumbs up on Facebook and on what you just said. Love it. Coach, man, this could be a 10-hour show. This was fantastic. Love it. I want to thank you for being on Baseball Outside the Box, man. It was great. Thanks, Pete. All right. We wish you the best. That is Coach Fady. Um, Don't forget, check him out. If you didn't see him on live on YouTube, you will listen to him on the podcast, Baseball Outside the Box, and also we're going to put it uh, today on YouTube. Folks in the U.S. and around the world, thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Pete Caliendo. I want to thank you for listening to the show that loves to interview some of baseball's best coaching minds and also that loves to challenge the status quo. Thank you to our producer, Brian Crock with the Lineup Media Group. Thanks to Coach Frady. Thanks to all our listeners. You make the show. God bless you all. Stay safe. Stay inside. Did they tell you everything's okay? Look forward to seeing you on the next show. This has been Baseball Outside the Box with Peter Caliendo. Listen online at BaseballOutsideTheBox.com and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all major podcast outlets. Join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Get all of our podcasts now at lineupmedia.fm.